The following is a sermon from the church at Cherry Dale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. If you will turn to Colossians 2, and I will too, we've been teaching through the series Alive in Christ, and uh, identity has played a big part in being alive in Christ. And so thinking about identity, uh, there's a story that I came across this week about uh, a not-so-young lady now, Mary Previty, who was taken prisoner at the beginning of World War II. She was a student in an international school in China, Chefu School, and forgive me, my Chinese is not very good, uh, where uh, MKs, other missionary kids, other British and American expats were uh, getting a Western education in China while their families were living abroad. And the day after the Pearl Harbor attacks, the Japanese rolled in, took everybody there prisoner, and used the school as a camp for them, which was rough. It was difficult for them. And if you have done any kind of study of history and looked into concentration camps and, and the sorts of things that happened in uh, the Soviet gulags and in the, the camps in and around Germany, uh, people are broken there and changed. And, and many, when they come out, will never be the same. They, they don't come out intact as, as whole people. But Mary, uh, as she was there as a child, recalled in this interview uh, that it was difficult, but that there were teachers there who cared for them and who started boy and girl scout troops, in large part to remind them of, of who they were, that this is the way that we behave, that the, the goal of you as a child is to grow up to be a, a productive and positive and, and helpful person, uh, to stay optimistic that these teachers, while they knew that the Japanese were uh, digging mass graves outside of concentration camps, were shielding the children and reminding them of their identity. And Mary uh, Previty recalled specifically, she said, our teachers absolutely were not going to let us forget that God was taking care of us and that they were going to take care of us. And so Mary as a result of being reminded who she was and who she would be, was able to survive and actually thrive even through these terrible experiences over the course of five, six years in camps. And because there were people who reminded her constantly who she was. Now, Paul is doing the same thing for us in Colossians 2. He's speaking to people who are already believers, who are living in fear of Rome, that they are in economic collapse. And in those days, when you owed, you could be taken captive, essentially, as a slave to repay the debts that you had. And so Paul is reminding them who they are and who Christ is and who he says that they are. And so as we look in uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 6, about what uh, Jesus is doing in and through us, Paul encourages them to remember, so then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. 
There is a lot here. We could do probably three sermons on this, just these two verses. There's a lot here, but we're going to try to to compress that down into a few points. First, you'll notice in in several of these, we'll highlight in red kind of the, the key thought as we're working. You have received Christ Jesus as Lord. As you know, regular Bible readers, church attenders, you hear Christ Jesus Lord all the time. And the, the saying familiarity breeds contempt, in this case familiarity kind of, you just gloss over what Paul is saying when he says Christ Jesus as Lord. And so when you say received, I, I actually in praying thought Mark 1, when Jesus kind of the first words on the scene, the kingdom of God is at hand, the invasion has begun, the world of darkness is being pushed back, the kingdom is here and now, repent and believe the gospel, come into the kingdom. And so when a, when a king invades into a place, you have two options. You receive the king, you bend the knee, you submit, you give them their due, which is their pretty much everything, or you could resist, you could fight back, you could rebel, okay? And we know <clears throat> as good Bible students that our natural state is rebellion, that we wanna fight back, we don't want a sovereign king ruling our lives. <clears throat> but these as believers and we as believers have bowed the knee, bent the knee. Christ is a title, it means that he's the chosen one of God. It's not just anybody, it's not his last name, right? It's not Jesus Christ as if I was Brandon Simpson, right? He's the chosen one of God, and his name means savior. So he's the chosen savior that God has sent. He's been promised. You read your whole Old Testament. That's all pointing to the promised savior. And he's Lord because he actually is the invading king. He actually is the ultimate authority, and that when you bow the knee, when you receive him as Lord, when he makes you his, all of you, is submitted to that, okay? That's a weird concept for us because we live in such an individualistic, I'm important, it's about me, Jesus came to save me, and that's true, he did, but he came to save you as your king, as your Lord, as your savior, right? So it's not a thing where it's like buddy Jesus and we're on, we're kind of, he's first among equals. It's not the way that it works, he is Lord, and so he calls us to continual and permanent submission, but, the good news of that submission is that uh, he, he doesn't rule over us like we would rule over us. So then just as you have received Christ, continue to live in him. So the, part of this heresy that if you're reading a CSB Bible, the, the header in this section is Christ versus the Colossian heresy. It's never explicitly written out, like here's the, the main points of the heresy, but there's a lot of clues in there, and, and these clues seem to indicate that we're looking for something that takes us a little beyond just believing the gospel. There's gotta be some secret thing that we're supposed to do, some way that we're supposed to behave, but no, Paul reminds them, just as you've received him, continue to live in him. And so he's calling them just to simple faith, that maturity, as you grow as a Christian, there's no moving beyond the gospel, there's exposing all of life to the gospel. So as you go, it is, uh, we're always uh, thinking of a dandelion, right? If you live somewhere that you have to maintain some space and you try to pull up a dandelion, there's a root but then there's a lot of other roots and soon enough there's another dandelion because it's hard for you to get to all those little uh, fingers of roots as they go down into the soil. In the same way that as we look at our own lives, 
and say, I, I need to expose all of those things. So I may pull up the big root of really clear, obvious, outward sin. I may have been uh, an alcoholic before God saved me and, and he delivered me from this really clear outward issue. But now maybe I'm turning into a bit of a Pharisee and I'm really proud of myself for the way that I've licked this thing and my pride and my saving myself is starting to come through. And as we expose more and more of life to the gospel, we see that sin for the icky nastiness that it is and continue to repent. The, uh, the situation that um, we're also in is, is this idea of, of lordship here is not crushing. In uh, Mark 10, Jesus reminds the disciples, they're, they're coming to him and saying, I, I really want to be number one and number two. We want to be the biggest and the baddest in the kingdom of heaven. Give us some seats next to yours. And Jesus says, hey, hold on, you don't understand. When the Gentiles get power, when people who are not in the kingdom get power, they use it to crush, they use it to take advantage. But when Jesus takes power, submitting to his lordship doesn't crush you, it actually makes you whole. It, it puts you into the state that you were created to be in, okay? When, when man was first made to worship and to reflect God's glory perfectly. And as we consider that, Paul says, hey, you need, in your simple faith, you need to be rooted and built up in him. And so what do, what do roots do? Roots give strength. Okay? When you think of a, a big oak tree outside, the roots keep it stable through the winds, through the storms, through earthquakes, all kinds of things can move and shake and happen. But that tree, if it is rooted, is established and being rooted in him, the roots also provide nutrition, provide support. So as you are rooted in him, your source of life is Christ. It's not what you do. We've talked about that for several weeks. It's not what other people think you are. It's Christ as your source of life. And you, you can think of uh, Psalm 1, the, the third verse in the book of Psalms, just gives the, uh, the word picture here of uh, a man who's planted by streams of water. And he says, he's like a tree planted beside flowing streams. And these are, you know, desert people. They live in the Mideast. That bears fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. That, that God, uh, when you root yourself in Christ, and as he builds you up there, and as he establishes you, uh, gives you solidarity and gives you what you need for life. And then he calls us to be established in the faith just as you were taught. So there's nothing else. This heresy we're trying to add to. We're trying to uh, find the secrets, the next steps. He says, no, no, no. Establishing the faith just as you were taught. And when I think, well, I wonder how they were taught. If you look to uh, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, Jesus, or Paul says, here's, here's what I teach with the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. This is it. This is the gospel. Okay, there's more to learn, but this is the gospel. The, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And he goes on to say, and to 500 others. So you could say, well, if all these people were alive at the time, you could go and say, did you actually see this? Did Jesus actually do this? And give verification that this is true. This is it. 
There's no other uh, secret rules, no uh, leveling up as you go. And so we want you to be established, firm, built up, unwavering in that faith. And that uh, you've got to hold fast to that foundation. And we'll come back to that uh, with an illustration of, of sailors and how they used to, uh, as they sailed around the world, not modern navies, but uh, in ships with actual sails as they traveled. But we've got to hold fast to the foundation and be established in it. Don't embellish the gospel. Don't add anything to it. And this feels like a strange tag and overflowing with gratitude until you consider that everything good in your life, that everything in your life is a gift of the gospel. And this idea of overflowing, my son Boone is almost four, and like most boys who are almost four, he has a really hard time being still, okay? So everything he does is punctuated by wiggles and giggles and bouncing and laughter and running, and it's exhausting, but he's overflowing with that. It's just in him coming out. It's as if you put a cup in the sink and you turn on the water, it will start to fill, and once it's full, it will continue overflowing as long as you continue filling it with water. And so the, the natural attitude of believers is that we are always and constantly being filled with the Spirit, with God's love, with his kindness. And so we should just be overflowing with gratitude, much in the way that um, my little munchkin is bouncing off the walls with energy as a little boy. <laughs> and uh, with that, man, we just sang the best sermon to that one line from Come Thou Fount, tune my heart to sing thy praise. I, I wish almost every week that I get to teach that I could just like stop and like, let's teach the things you just sung to each other and the encouragement and what really is the words you just said. Because I know life gets in the way and sometimes you come in and you're a little bit absent and they're familiar tunes and that's not bad. But man, when you really get into the things that you're saying when you sing to one another to encourage, it's beautiful. So thinking of this overflowing this morning, if you're struggling with that, ask God to tune your heart to sing his praise. Now, he says, here's, here's the basics. That's it. This is the gospel. But be careful because he knows that these people are under assault, that their belief is under assault, that they're being tempted to think there's more. So be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. So be careful that no one takes you captive. I, I really have never read a warning in scripture that I didn't need. Okay? When, uh, when I read Ephesians 5 and it says, husbands love your wives and wives respect your husbands, it says it in those ways because it's harder for me to be tender and loving and gentle. I want to treat everybody like, hey, we're at work, we got to do business. And then it's harder for, per Genesis 3 and the curse, for women to then deferentially and submissively uh, respect their husbands in a mutual loving and building up kind of way. So we get those specific encouragements because they're not natural to us. And so when he says be careful, it's because we, we really do think that there's more. Okay? We act it out all the time where uh, if, if someone does something kind for you, then instead of receiving grace, I have to repay grace. I can't receive a gift. We have to be on equal footing. You might have power over me if you've done something kind for me. Okay? We act this out. Uh, the, 
But then the, the question is, if in Christ you are free, why would you resubmit yourself to captivity? It's irrational, it's crazy to do that. And he says, well, how would you get caught? What's the trap? It's just through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition and based on elements of the world. So I, I read this elements of the world in light of verse 20 and following, that's the second time that that's brought up. Like there seems to be a lot of Jewish tradition that's getting mixed in with Christianity, which makes sense since Jesus was born a Jew and he's the Messiah who they have foretold for so long that you might think, well, I need to do some of these Jewish things like circumcision to uh, actually be in the fold. It's not just simple faith, it's simple faith plus some kind of mark that makes me a Christian. For us, that's less of a, a thing. We're not so worried that we look like the Jewish Christians who were the first believers, but we, we definitely live in a world where uh, we have kind of the, the moralism, Southern Christianity, the bless your heart Christianity, that uh, I, could, I could very quickly become a person who Jesus called a whitewashed tomb. That on the outside, I behave correctly, I say yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am, I'm polite, but inwardly seething with bitterness or jealousy or despair and holding to all of that while crushing the people around me with my issues in life. So I wanna watch out for that. I could also be just living out dirty, nasty righteousness that uh, as I do well, I'm proud and as I do well and you don't, I crush you with it. I wanna tell you all about how I'm perfect and you're not, okay? This is a, a warning because Paul says in Romans that apart from the spirit, you can't do righteousness. And Jesus warns in the parable of the lost sons that the righteousness of the older brother was what kept him from communion with his father because he was too good. He had it right. He had leverage over the Father because I've done the right thing. And we do the same. We say, God, I've obeyed you so well. Why aren't you doing what I want you to do? I'm obeying you to get leverage. I'm obeying you so you have to re repay me. So we want to be careful. We want to be careful of that. And then rather than Christ, man, why, why would we trade anything here? <clears throat> We've already said kind of we're, we're naturally susceptible to captivity, to finding something else. Our hearts are idol factories. We're always looking to make something else God, to live for something else. And uh, it's really important to know that the gospel, when we do anything other than just Jesus, we're missing it. So Jesus plus nothing else. There's no additive, there's no behavioral thing, there's no sign, it's just Jesus is what purchases salvation. It's a better, better alternative. So now, Paul knows that the Colossians, that we, need to be reminded why this is the case. And so he goes on to list out in the rest of this passage several reasons why Jesus is better, why Jesus plus nothing is what you want, why simple faith is the way. So how do we avoid captivity? Because I, I would hope that we all are in the boat, we're like, well, I don't like the idea of captivity. If I'm in Christ, I've been freed. I want to live freely in him. We have to know who Jesus is and who we are in him, okay? This identity question comes up 
week after week because it's central to really knowing what's going on here. So he starts, first point. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. So A, really simply, Jesus is fully God. And so if you're thinking, well, I'm going to add something to this, what is there to add? Jesus is God. He's whole. He's perfect. There is nothing you can add to God. He's infinitely God. Okay? No way that we can do more or get better than that. That um, <clears throat> as we, we consider that, man, he's, he's, just, he's just better. I won't dwell there. But the, um, you know, it, also as a reminder, so if you're, as you're doing your Bible study, this week, just reread Colossians 1 if you start to forget this, right? The, the Christ hymn right there that just magnifies well beyond. I'm glad Paul was inspired uh, by the Spirit as he wrote that to not leave anything out. Like, it's, it's a beautiful and powerful passage. So we need to remember Jesus is God, and you've been filled by him. But how can you be filled by him? Well, in Romans 5... Uh, Jesus says, or Paul says about the Spirit, that our hope that's been built up through going through trials and trusting Christ and, and holding fast to our faith, that our hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And so the Holy Spirit in us is the guarantee of that promise, that, that your faith is not in vain, that holding to the simplicity of Jesus plus nothing is everything, is good enough. That's all that you need. And the spirit and the, the love of Christ is poured out through the spirit in you is the, the guarantee of that promise. And then we think of, of who Jesus is. Not only is he fully God, but as if we needed an extra reminder, he's the head over every ruler and authority. So Jesus plus anything else is captivity. Because we, we could be in a position with this where, say, Jesus plus, um, you know, submitting to the, the rule, the whims of my social media circle of friends. And so as they post their highlight reels of their Christian lives as moms, as workers, as whatever, I think, man, I have to measure up to this, this standard of life. And I can feel the, the pain of not measuring up if I look at these things long enough and closely enough, I can think Jesus plus perfect obedience, that I never mess up, I always follow the rules, I get everything right every time, equals captivity. Why? Because you won't, because we can't, right? Because we make mistakes, because we willfully sin sometimes. We can't, it's captivity. It's taking on to yourself the burden that Jesus took away from you. Okay. <clears throat> now, why else should we hold on and hold fast? Because you've been changed. You're not the same person you were before you bowed the knee to Christ. And how are you different? Well, first, you've been filled with the Spirit. You've been filled by Him, who's the head over every ruler and authority. Second, you were also circumcised in Him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. That's kind of a weird, awkward line here. Um, 
thinking of circumcision, uh, the idea is, is essentially cutting something off, right? Cutting away from. And so Paul gives some detail in other passages, and, and God has been foretelling this symbol, this mystery, uh, since well before in the Old Testament, in circumcision in another language. So in Romans 2, Paul says to the Jews, we say God's people, that's what we're thinking of when we see Jews in this, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. So what you do with your body, in this case, doesn't make you one of God's people. So circumcision done in the flesh, done by human hands, isn't salvation. There's no mark there. Okay? And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. Rather, on the contrary, a person is a Jew, one of God's people, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. And so in circumcision, in cutting away, God cuts away what's in our hearts and resupplies us with a new one, which is really beautifully pictured in Ezekiel 36. He says in verses 26 and 27, I will give you, speaking to the people of Israel, a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. So what you were born with, what you were born with was a heart of flesh, a heart of, st- or a heart of stone. It was hard to him. It was hard to the gospel. It wanted its own way. It wanted to be its own ruler. And instead, he says, I will do the work, cosmic heart surgery. I will take out who you used to be and put in who I am in fulfilling you. And I will place my spirit within you. And because I've done that, what you love is going to be what I love. The mark, a mark of circumcision of the heart is that you love what God loves. He says, because I'm going to cause you, I'm going to make you to follow my statutes, follow my law, and carefully observe my ordinances. In other words, I'm going to make you love my ways. I'm going to make you love to do what's right. Um, Rather than brute force working your way laboriously through trying to follow the Ten Commandments, trying to do what's right, that he provides what you need. And then in having done that, He also um, has, in the the circumcision of Christ, uh, putting off the body of flesh made you a new creation. Chapter 3 is going to start to lead into what it's like living as a new creation, so I'm excited for when we get there in in a few weeks. Uh, But it is, uh, the the old you is gone, it's dead, okay? And he, he pictures that a little bit more in just a moment through baptism. So, verse 12, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the working of God, uh, who raised him from the dead? You died with Christ. So the image of baptism as we practice by immersion is that you are someone who has been changed. You are dead. A new person has been put in your place. Your heart of stone has been surgically removed and a new heart of flesh has been put in its place. And then we, we picture that in being buried with Christ in baptism as we go under the water and then resurrected with him as we come back out of the water. So you, when you bowed the knee, when you submitted, the you that was you apart from Christ has died. It's gone. Amen. Amen. And then you 
were raised with him. And so you as a believer right now, if you are a Christian, are a new creation. The old has passed away, it's gone, it's dead. The power of sin is over that first man, that first woman, the one that you were born as. But as it has been killed with Christ and resurrected new, the power of the spirit is the animating force in your life, not the power of sin and temptation, not the grave, not fear of death, but you were made new. And when you were dead, so next thought, why, why would you continue to hold fast? Why is Jesus better? How can you avoid captivity? Because when you were dead in trespasses, trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses. Yeah, so when you were dead, you were lifeless, you were hopeless, you couldn't do anything on your own behalf, as I've mentioned, reiterate, that uh, all of your righteousness apart from Christ is as filthy rags, as dirty and nasty. It is you trying to make your own way to uh, save yourself, to give yourself worth and value apart from God. And so we are sinners by nature and by choice. That as we were born into Adam, as our, our great, great, great grandfather, that we inherited the sin that he committed in the garden. And if that were not enough, we go on sinning all the time, everywhere, in every way. And so we could say, man, it's not fair that we get this from Adam, but we're piling up in his tradition all on our own. But rather... Uh, God is acting in us. So when we get to do our own thing, dead in trespasses, we're just piling them up as far as we can go. But he made you alive with Christ, that God acts on your behalf to bring you back. And uh, <clears throat> as we consider that, I mean, a reminder, again, that Jesus is, is the thing. There's nothing else. All of your actions apart from him lead you to captivity, pile up, uh, the debt that you owe in trespasses and missing the mark. But in Christ, with nothing else, we, we have our way. And then because of that, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations. And we understand the idea of debt because when somebody says to you, thank you, you say, you're welcome because you owe me a response. Right? We, we get it in every little thing. When I do something nice for you, you think, well, when could we have them back over for dinner? I want to repay this kindness that they gave me. I feel like there's an obligation on me. If you borrow money, you can rest assured that the bank expects that you'll pay them back, right? You owe me this. The, the issue here, though, is that as we pile up trespasses, what are we owed? Well, the Bible says that the wages of sin... And wages are what you get for you do a good day's work. You're owed some recompensation for that, some compensation. You owe me death. When I am piling up trespasses, I'm owed death. Justice means that those debts have to be repaid. They can't go on into eternity undealt with. <sighs> Praise be to God that he in Christ has taken away, canceled that obligation of debt by nailing it to the cross. So a way that uh, Keller 
Tim Keller has described this idea of circumcision, of being cut off, is that knowing that the penalty for sin is death, that as Christ goes to the cross, he experiences being cut off for us, that he receives kind of the, the, the cosmic debt repayment on our behalf, that he gets the wrath of God, that we get the great exchange of our filth, our uh, owed debt, in exchange for his perfect account, as if it had never been. And that in doing that, and in being raised from the dead, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he disgraced them publicly, and he triumphed over them in Christ. And so as we think of who might take us captive, we, as we receive in simple faith that like, there, there's no one who has power over Christ. The only way we go into captivity is if we choose to leave all of these really strong arguments for why you don't want to leave Christ to go back and submit ourselves to captivity, to something else. That in, in all of time, in all the universe, there is no greater power than Christ. There's no other thing that you can substitute there. There's nothing that if you are looking for a better way that you can add to Jesus, because that's it, he's all. He's all there is in all, okay? And there's not a better way. You can't through your obedience, you can't through your cleverness, you can't through uh, your achievement, through your merit, through your, who you were born to, any of it. There is no better way than submitting to Christ whose lordship in your life is not tyranny, but is fulfilling who, who you were supposed to be. And so we need to hold fast. Now, old sailors, it was common, cross their knuckles to get tattooed, hold fast. You think, why? Because what were they doing? On a sailing ship, there's all kinds of rigging, there's all kinds of ropes that in a storm, if we are tugging against this thing to keep the sail in place so that it's not blown away in a, in a uh, storm, if I am the one that lets go, it could be me that's caused everyone on this ship to die at sea. That we hold fast because it means life. And if I let go, it could be death. So we hold fast. And we hold fast because, quick review, because you've been filled by Christ. Because if you are in Christ, you've been filled with the Spirit. He's the promise of the future blessing and the current blessing that you have. That you've been changed inwardly. You have a new heart. That old heart has been cut away. That you were buried with him, raised with him, if you've been baptized, okay, it's not a saving act, but it is a beautiful picture of the saving act, that you were dead, the old man, and a new one is now sitting in the seat hearing the gospel preached. That you were dead in sin, but by Christ, uh, through God's working, you've been made alive, you've been given life, you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. That you were dead in sin, Oh, repeat. And then the debt incurred by our sin, which was well beyond anything we can comprehend. You might be up to your eyeballs in real money debt right now, and it doesn't hold a candle to the debt of sin against God, has been paid by Christ by nailing him with your debt to the cross. 
that, that those who would rule over you by adding to your faith useless traditions, ways that you ought to be behaving that are not in line with just what's in scripture, have been defeated and disgraced as Christ has overcome death and the grave in the world. And so <clears throat> one of the ways that we as a church and as the universal church works hard to remember to hold fast to these truths is through the ordinance of communion. It's in taking the Lord's Supper together. And so we, uh, we are a blessed and a humbled people because who, who did all of these things that we've been thinking about? It wasn't us. It wasn't our power that moved us from darkness to light. It was God's work in us. It was Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. So we're a humble people who come to him with love. This love, this calling out, this chosenness doesn't set us apart in a way that makes us better. It sets us apart in a way that makes us loving. It sets us apart in a way that makes us want to share the mercy and the grace that we've received. And so as we together think of how our Savior, the God of the universe, was killed on the cross as he died a criminal's death on the, under the curse for us, that he went humbly like a lamb. And before he went to go do that, he said, hey, uh, disciples, we're gonna share one last meal together. And I want it to be really meaningful because you would want it to be really meaningful if you knew that you were sharing your last meal with the people that you loved. <clears throat> and so he says to them a few things and says, hey, institute this as a family practice, something that you'll do on and on and on to remember me. But as Paul describes what goes on, he reminds the church in Corinth in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 that it's important how we do this together, that this is a thing that we need to do worthily that we, we want to examine our hearts, that we want to reflect on Christ, that we don't want to take what, what images the body and blood of Christ and not think of him as we do it. And so for the next couple of minutes, uh, I think uh, Jess is going to come and, and uh, play a little bit for us as we do this. I want to give you space because Paul says that to do this unworthily, to do this without considering what's going on in your heart, how you're living in, in response to Christ's goodness and his grace is to invite judgment from God. He says to the church of Corinth, this is why some of you are sick, why some of you even gone to sleep, passed away. And so I just want you to take a moment as uh, our servers come down and as the elements are passed to just marinate in Colossians 2 to think of how God has done so much for us of who we are in him, so that in a worshipful heart, with a clear conscience, we can uh, participate and celebrate in this together, okay? It's in that space. Let's pray together, and then uh, we'll continue to sing. God, thank you that you've given us all we need in Christ, and that <clears throat> there's no amount of doing it better or cleverer or in a way that, that somebody else is going to approve of that can save me more. God, thank you for the freedom and the simple faith of trusting that you're enough. 
And God, I pray that you would help us to stake our lives on that, that we would submit ourselves to you as Lord, and that uh, as we have done in taking the supper and in pray- and singing together, that we would continue to encourage one another to remember, to love, to serve you and one another until you come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.